Welcome to episode number six of the Preach and Persuade podcast. We are currently in a series on the doctrines of grace, and you probably know these famous doctrines as the five points of Calvinism or, uh, you know, the acronym TULIP that is used to, uh, yeah, talk about the five points of Calvinism. So we're, we're currently at the second point, which is unconditional election, and hopefully you listened to uh, last week's podcast on part one of unconditional election and uh i thought it i thought it went really well and i i we we mentioned a few things at the very end of the podcast that we wanted to make sure we talked about in this one so we're going to be continuing um the talk on the doctrine of election which really is one of the most contested doctrines in all the scripture Uh, what christians believe about election has been debated uh for centuries and and how God saves people has been debated for centuries, and this is it goes all the way back to the really you know, you know you could say with Saint Augustine with his uh you know his Augustinian uh, theology, and then uh, Pelagian with his Pelagian theology, and Augustine really uh, defended the fact that God is the sole actor in our salvation. He did all the work. He did everything. He's the one that. Uh, uh, that took our sins on the cross. Uh, he's the one. Jesus is the one that faced the wrath of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the one through the gospel message that regenerates a dead heart and even gives somebody the ability to even see God as as desirable. So before God does this work on this, we hate God. And so Augustine, way back, way back in the day, you know, literally like fifteen hundred, you know, well, yeah, about fifteen hundred years ago. Uh, he was defending this that he saw so clearly, you know, talked about in the scriptures. And then we have uh, the Reformation, and we had the reformers who who defended these doctrines that they saw in the scriptures. Martin Luther uh, boldly defended predestination or election, uh, as he saw it in the scriptures and as he saw it in the Book of Romans and other places in scripture. And then we have John Calvin who uh, boldly defended it. Uh, and wrote his famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And so people have been defending these doctrines for, for centuries. Jonathan Edwards was the next big defender of these doctrines uh, in the early 1700s as a Puritan writer. And, and so this isn't a new thing. This isn't a new discussion. This isn't a new argument. Uh, people have been disagreeing on these, on these doctrines for, for centuries and centuries, for thousands of years. Big divides, big debates... Uh, Big heresies, you could say, have come out of some of these uh, these arguments, and so it's still relevant today. <laughs> Believe it or not, people still have, you know, quite possibly the biggest divide in the Christian Church right now is the divide on on these doctrines. Really, it is uh, Arminianism and Calvinism, um, and it's interesting. Like these these sets of doctrines, uh, both sides claim they're biblical. Um, so that means we have to go to the Bible to see what the Bible really says. But let's not get caught up on the names Arminianism and Calvinism. Uh, Arminianism is named after a guy whose last name was Arminianus. Calvinism is named after a guy whose last name was Calvin. Uh, they're named after guys who were their biggest advocates in a certain period of time. Not a big deal. Let's not get caught up on who these people are. We don't need to think about John Calvin. We don't need to think about Jacob Arminianus. It doesn't matter. What matters is what the Bible says. And that's what... We would say John Calvin cared about. He cared about what the Bible said. And he went to the Bible to see what the scriptures said about these things, and he wrote about them. And we want to do the same today. We want to go to the Bible. We want to see what the Bible says about the doctrine of election. Uh, we want to go to the Bible to see what it says about the state of man and man's heart and man's will. Uh, we want to go to the Bible to see what the Bible says about God. Uh, God has uh, revealed his divine nature and eternal power in creation uh, and it's clearly perceived by every person who lives we know there's a God we suppress that truth and unrighteousness that's in Romans 1 but then God has revealed himself personally to us in the scriptures and so if we want to know God personally intimately, relationally we got to go to the Bible to see how he's revealed himself to us we can't try to figure out on our own with our own intuition. We can't use our own reason to try to figure out how God has worked, how God has acted, what he has done, who he is. We got to go to the place that he has told us uh, 
who he is, and that is the Bible. So all I have to say again, you know this if you've been listening to any of these podcasts, Adam and I are Bible guys. We like the Bible, and we want to talk about the Bible, and we want to ground everything that we say in the Bible. I hope you don't care about what I think or what Adam thinks or what our opinions are. I hope you care about what the Bible has to say. And so again, we were talking about, uh, in the last episode, election. And, and we gave some cursory scripture readings. I quoted the Westminster Confession, what they uh, synthesized as the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. Um, uh, we, we briefly went into Romans 9. So one thing that we're going to do in this episode is we're really going to get into Romans 9. We're going to look at the entirety of Romans 9, walk really right through it as best we can. It's likely that we'll go so much that we'll have to make this an episode number three to finish up this this uh, this doctrine of election. Um, but we're going to be in Romans 9 a lot. But I want to start, before we really get into the doctrine of election in Romans 9, to really just try, in some sense, to grasp the best we can the sovereignty of the God that we worship. And again, we the doctrine of election is that God has chosen before the foundation of the world, according to his perfect will and perfect knowledge, who he would save. And we know that we need to be chosen by God to receive salvation because we are unable to choose God by our own will because our wills are, are tainted by sin. We do not desire God and we don't seek God. So God has to come after us. And God has to act on us. Um, but the Bible says in a few places, there's actually quite a few places where it talks about this book, and it's called the Book of Life or the Book of the Lamb who was slain. And the Bible talks about how God wrote in this book, before the foundations of the world, the names of those people who he would save. And Adam, would you so kindly read uh, Revelation 13 verse 8 is that what it is it is yeah um so just a little bit of context here um this is um in revelation 13 uh the apostle john is having a vision uh of what what we would commonly call the antichrist um and we're just narrowing down on verse 8 because if we read this whole thing it would add in a lot of uh, confusion because this is a very complicated vision that John is having. Uh, but he describes um, this image that, that he's seeing as a beast that is speaking blasphemies against God. And in verse 8, it says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Yes. So it's pretty clearly stated out that, though it is confusing, it's like, hmm, what was this book like? Is it a literal book? Does God actually have a spiritual type book that he wrote the names in? Really doesn't matter. The fact that is, is the fact of the matter is there, we could say there is a book and God has written these names down in it of those who he would save. Those we, like we mentioned last time, we went through Romans 8 with the golden what you call it, the golden chain. Yep. That's what you called it, yes. And uh, I'm going to take a break because the dog's drinking some water and it's <laughs> making some good noise. That's a good beat. <laughs> bone makes him thirsty. I'm sure if you've been listening to any of these episodes, you've probably heard that dog thunder, the, the Rottweiler that occupies the space under our feet while we do this um, <laughs> podcast, but we'll wait till he's done drinking his water to continue. Wow, he's going to drink that whole thing. He's incredibly thirsty after chewing on that rawhide. I yeah, guess. a little bit of salt in that? I guess. <laughs> a little bit of salt in that bone there? Thunder, are you okay? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just drink like a gallon of water. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Okay, so the point is is that God has determined these names. God has chosen them. God has foreordained that these would be the people that that he saves. God has, like we said, foreloved them. He has always had an intimate love 
in relationship with these people in his mind, in his will. He's going to save them. He's going to predestine them to be conformed to the image of his son. He's going to glorify him. He's going to justify him. Uh, so these names were written down. That's what the Bible tells us. And we even have another passage. This is in the Old Testament in Psalm uh, 139. David is writing the Psalm and he says, uh, I praise you. He's talking to God. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when we, when as yet there was none of them. So, uh, I mean, there's some symbolic language here. There's some figurative language definitely all over in Psalms because a lot of it is poetry. But there's meaning behind this figurative language. And this, the, the point of this is, is that God has, has made him. God has predetermined his existence. God has written every one of his days out, meaning like God knows all his days. He's orchestrated all of his days. He sees all his days, David's days, before David even was in existence. He controls them. He brings them to pass as he always has saw, seen them to be. He is sovereignly in control of the smallest details of this universe. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Charles, Charles Spurgeon who said that it, trying to... Uh, 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 illustrate the sovereignty of God over his creation. He says he even controls the random uh, the random movement of the dust motes in the air. So if you see, like, uh, if you're in a dark room and there's a window uh, and it's light outside, there's a pretty clear beam of light that comes down through the window. And you can see these little dust particles that are in the air pretty clearly in, in that beam of light that's coming through that window. And we've all seen things like this before. And you just see these dust mo these little dust particles just kind of randomly flowing in with the current of the air. Uh, and he goes, God even controls the movement of those dust particles. He sees every single one of them, knows exactly where they are. God says uh, in the Testament that he, he has numbered the hairs of our head. He knows the very number of the hairs that are on our head. Like these things, he knows absolutely everything he knows the location if you're a science nerd the location of every electron in its electron cloud as it's orbiting the nucleus of an atom like there's in science and in chemistry there's an electron cloud and it's actually we don't actually know exactly where the electron is it's it could it, it could be anywhere within this cloud and so we kind of have to predict it god knows he controls it and so he controls everything now to try to bring this a little deeper on how much God controls everything. So, you know, we have to kind of think about this linearly because we're humans. And we kind of have to think about these things in time because it's hard for us to think outside of time because we can't. But God has written these names. Let's just say he's written these names of those who he would save in the book of life. So he's written individual names who are people, real people. Not just, it's not like he, there's a name, it's just a name, and then he creates a generic human being to, to now be this name. No, this name is attached to an actual individual with a very unique personality, a very unique being. It's unlike any other individual. And we could say, now that we know a little bit about science, with a very specific genetic code, a very ge specific DNA sequence, that it's only to them. We know that DNA is totally unique. I mean, apart from identical twins who have the same genetic code but again there's something cool about that though even though they have the same genetic code they're different people they have different souls and you can see that in them they're definitely not the same person they're different even though they have the same genetic code but apart from identical twins everybody else has a different dna sequence throughout history uh nobody other than identical twins have had this has had the same exact genetic code it's so complex it's so there's so much to a dna sequence so you could say that God has written these names, who he would save. And that means that he is foreordained, uh, predestined to their very uh, genetic makeup, which is very complex and very unique. And God has sovereignly ordained that we would come into existence through procreation, where one man and one woman come together, and they have sexual intercourse. Uh, the Part of the man's uh, genome is, is combined with the woman's. 
uh, and and so half of his DNA is 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 randomly mixed up. I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm oversimplifying it. It's a little bit more complex than that, but. Half of his DNA it goes into a sperm cell. Half of her DNA goes into an egg cell. They come together and they make uh, a full set of, of chromosomes and DNA to make a new human being. And so God has sovereignly orchestrated every single human being who's ever existed, their sexual union to bring about the specific person. And think about, for instance, me right now or Adam right now. My specific genetic code and my specific DNA is reliant on the fact that from the time of Adam, the right two people have come together, procreated to form a very specific person. Perfectly, all the way through thousands of years of history, that I would have this DNA sequence that is very unique to me. That's like the control is unbelievable. Like we can't comprehend the control. And that obviously means that all the sexual unions that some of them might have been rape, uh, where a man rapes a woman and gets her pregnant and she conceives and gives birth to a child. And that child then has a child later on. Like part of that is definitely in our history. Who knows how far back we would have to go into my genealogy to find uh, one of my distant ancestors conceived from rape. And that's horrible and wicked. But God uses even those evil and wicked actions to bring about his sovereign will. He's working in all of this. And we can even go even deeper. Like, uh, I, I don't remember the number, but like the, the amount of sperm cells that a man produces in his lifetime is, is unbelievably high like millions upon millions of them he does in a lifetime and all of them are very unique because his dna combines in a very unique way um to make these these different sperm cells and so that means that the right sperm and the right egg from the woman have to come together to create this very unique person it's not like they can just take you know it's not like every child that a husband and a wife has is the same exact child and same exact dna no they're different and so just the complexity of that, every single person who was ever born is exactly how God saw it to bring about the, these people that he said he has written in, in the book of life before the foundations of the world. Very complex, very specific, as specific as it gets. Like this is utter control, sovereign control. That's the God that the Bible displays, a God that controls all. Everything that comes to pass. Everything, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, everything works out according to the counsel of his will. Everything. And so when we come to election, those like God has chosen before the foundation of the world, those who would save, like that kind of, that makes sense though. If, if the God of the Bible, if the God that the Bible displays is a God that has that much control and is that sovereign, it would make sense that he has also controlled who, those who he would save. It makes sense. Why would he control all these things and then all of a sudden just leave this one up to human agency and human free will and somehow somehow he can still be sovereign but yet human beings can also be sovereign in their own regard and how does that work? Well, it really doesn't. Uh, I mean, there is, there is a reality that we, we do have a will and we do make choices that we're accountable for but that will is always underneath the sovereign will of God and how they harmonize is again a mystery. But uh, we don't have to try to understand everything. We just have to submit to what we know God has told us is true. That was kind of... <laughs> well, I, I mean, what do you think about that, Adam? Well, I think there's a biblical example for, um, for, for what you lay out. I mean, I think there's actually several of them. But, uh, you know, if, if we consider the genealogy of Jesus... Right. Um, there, there are some examples of some, some very bad things that happened right um in to result in jesus's genealogy yep um you know like if, if you look at um boaz and ruth um who are um the grandparents the great grandparents of david mm -hmm. but, um i think i got the generations right there jesse was boaz's grandson right yeah uh 
you know, um, Ruth, uh, Ruth was a widow, right? Or was right. Uh, yeah. a Gentile widow? Yep, a Gentile widow. Um, so you know, there is a death involved in her first marriage mm-hmm. before she married Boaz. Um, and then if you look at David, um, it, you know, Jesus's genealogy continues. Um, from David through Solomon. Yeah. Well, even you can even back up further. Rahab the prostitute. Right. Was yep. also part of Jesus's right genealogy. Another Gentile prostitute woman who ended up being a part of Jesus's genealogy. Right. Um, where I'm going with the David and Solomon thing, though, right. is Bathsheba, because Bathsheba is Solomon's mother, mm-hmm. and. In order for that union to come about, uh, David committed a grave sin by committing adultery with Bathsheba, um, and then murdered her husband. Right, and then Bathsheba got pregnant. Yep, as a result of of that adultery, and um, that baby died. God. God judged them. Yes. and took that life from them. Yeah, because God is sovereign to do that. Right, and. The scripture is clear that 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 child is in heaven, right? Uh, which you know is certainly David a, laments and he looks forward to the time you'll see his son again, right? Yep. yep. Um, so, uh, and and that that certainly has implications in other parts of theology, which we can it, talk about at a different does. time. Um, but uh, so I mean, we're we're talking about an adultery, a murder, and then the loss of of a baby, mm-hmm. uh, like a seven day old baby. And then, uh, and then we have David and Bathsheba get married, mm-hmm. and then conceive Solomon. Right. And through all of that is the genealogy of of Christ. Yeah. Right. And so, God is sovereign over all of it. I mean, the very God. You would be pretty certain that God has foreordained the the fleshly body that He would be. You know, Jesus is body his earthly body very unique a, still a genetic you know has a genetic makeup like that body uh again there is there's there's a genealogy to it and so it's very interesting and then there's some mystery too with the fact that well mary was conceived by the power of the holy spirit so right. to god certainly we have part of mary's dna in there but what about uh you know obviously god is sovereign to to add in uh the the fatherly uh, half of that genetic code, but that's just kind of getting off of a little right. bit of a tangent. But it's so the, interesting. The, the point is, is that God, and we know this from Romans eight, right? All things work together for the good of those who love God, right. according to His purpose. I mean, we, you could say that in just by saying the words that God redeems everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, God has a way for, uh, for, for the purposes of His will. Um, and for his glory to redeem anything. Correct. And I don't know, have we talked yet about... Because within this discussion on election, certain things that come up, and we'll mention some of them, as we work through Romans 9, Romans 9 addresses a lot of these problems that people have with this doctrine, uh, which is really great, because God is helpful in giving us things that we need <laughs> to understand things like... Oh, he addresses it. I have this issue. Oh, Paul addresses it in Romans 9. Nonetheless, um, one of those problems with this doctrine of election is the, uh, is the problem of evil. Uh, if God has foreordained those who would save, and uh, that means he's foreordained that sin would enter into the world so that he could save people, um, all, this, all this stuff, and that's certainly true. God did foreordain that Adam and Eve would fall. Uh, but de- the Bible very, very clearly says that God created Adam and Eve good and perfect and in right standing and righteous. Uh, so the mystery is how did God create Adam and Eve perfectly good and so therefore not being accountable. He's, he did not create evil. He cannot create evil. It's impossible because evil is the very opposite of God. Uh, how did it come into being? How did Adam and Eve still sin? And the bit, even the more complex question is how did Satan sin? How did Satan rebel? Those are things that are really mysterious. We really don't know. And again, we don't need to know 
but God has told us that he is not the author of sin. He cannot be. He did make Adam and Eve perfectly good, but he also did foreordain that they would fall according to the perfect counsel of his will. Things that are paradoxical. They seem to be contradictory, but in the mind of an infinite God, they are not. Uh, and we know, again, we can trust. Remember last week we talked about the hermeneutical principles uh, that that guide our, our understanding of Scripture. Uh, so we got to realize that we know that God is a God of order and, and God cannot contradict himself and God does not lie in God. Uh, he, 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 he's, he's not going to... Um, um, yeah, what am I trying to say? I just totally lost my train of thought. But you get what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know what just happened. That's okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, let's just read Romans 9, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I think... Uh, so uh, we kind of introduced Romans 9 at the end of uh, last week's episode where we talked about if the doctrine of election makes you sad, you're in good company because it made Paul incredibly sad. And so we talked about the opening of Romans 9, where in verses 1 through 5, he's mourning for his um, his Jewish kin, um, the his, his fellow Israelites, uh, that not all of them will be saved. And he says in verse 2 that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And he even goes on to say that he wishes he could be um, damned um, if it would mean the salvation of all of the Israelites. Mm -hmm. Verse 3. Um, and then his, you know, his reason for that is, well, the Israelites were given the law and the prophets and the scripture. Uh, be, he's referring to the Old Testament. Um and they have the patriarchs, so that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, you know, they have the promises of God. And, you know, he spends a lot of time in the early part of Romans talking about those things. Um, right. But then he goes on to say in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So <clears throat> what what Paul is talking about here is God gave Abraham a promise that he would make Abraham a great nation and that uh, and that he would give Abraham uh, a bunch of land. And uh, then Abraham had uh, had some children, and God promised that it would be through Isaac that that promise would be fulfilled. Well, let's back up a bit. So Abraham, older man, his wife, older woman, past what would be considered a childbearing age. So this promise that God would bless the nations through his offspring was a, was a promise that would require a lot of faith to trust. Mm -hmm. It's like this is somewhat miraculous if we're able to conceive children at our point in life. We're older. Right. Um, and so, out of a moment of, you could say, doubt, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, has Abraham sleep with their uh, her servant, Hagar, yep. and she, Hagar, conceives Ishmael, mm -hmm. who is Abraham's son. And so, for the promise to be fulfilled, they thought they would take the matters into their own hands and get Abraham a son, Ishmael. And so that is what the Bible refers to as uh, the offspring, really, of, of the flesh. Like Ishmael is the representation of fleshly offspring, the people of the world, rather than the people of the promise. And so then God says, no, I will not bless the world through your offspring, Ishmael. I will certainly give you a child, a son, through your wife, Sarah, and he will be Isaac. So continue. Okay, and then uh, and then in verse eight he says, "This means that it is not the children of the flesh that's Ishmael, yeah, who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as 
offsprings of Abraham. Isaac. Yeah. Um, for this is what the promise said about this time next year. Um, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca, so that's actually um, the wife of Isaac, of Isaac yep. uh, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay, let's stop there. So we have two amazing things going on here. Uh, it's unbelievable how God worked in this way in the Old Testament, how Paul is, is, is showing us these 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 amazing realities that God has interwoven into how he's sovereignly brought his will, you know, about. So you have, again, Isaac is the child of Abraham and Sarah. He is the child of, of, of the promise, not the child of the flesh, who is Ishmael. And so God, again, is referring to the fact that he's choosing a people uh, that are you know, a separated, a chosen, a, a unique people, not the people of the world, not the people of the flesh. He's not choosing the people of the flesh. Um, and then we have Isaac gets married to Rebecca. That's a cool love story if you want to go read about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, and then uh, Rebecca gives birth to Esau. Well, well she gets pregnant with twins. She's just pregnant with twins. Yep. And now here's the interesting thing. Now, Isaac and Rebecca, you know, Rebecca was 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 his his wife. It wasn't like Isaac was getting pray, you know, was have, having sex with a with Rebecca's uh, servant like like Sarah did with uh, Hagar and Ishmael. No, these two children, her twins, were were both, uh, you could say, blood descendants. They were both, you could say. Children of the promise, if you wanted to say that. Both of them were, in that sense. They were both in line. They both had the pure blood. I don't know how you want to describe it. Uh, they were both Isaac's legitimate children. Legitimate children, yes. Yeah. And in and in ancient uh, Israel, well, it, Israel wasn't a nation at this point, but in ancient times, in, in this culture that Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah lived in, it was very much a... The promise uh, and the land and the um, the wealth of the parents gets um, passed down to the oldest son. Yes, uh, that's how it worked. And so, what what Paul is showing us here is that God, in His sovereignty, chose that Jacob, even though he was going to be born second in this pair of twins, that Jacob was going to be the child through which the promise is continued. And that Esau, <clears throat> who would be born first, uh, <clears throat> would would actually serve um, his younger brother, Jacob. And the reason that Rebekah was told this was because God said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And Paul's point here is, in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, because of God. God said, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, because God wanted to choose. Right. He wants to display this to us so he so we understand and know that he is sovereignly in control of who he chooses. Um, so we have two examples back to back uh, to show this. Uh, and it's interesting. Here's the subtlety again. God is sovereignly in control. But notice if you go back to the story of, and this is really important, you should go back to the story of Jacob and, and Esau. And you will see that how... 
Jacob was the one that got blessed was the fact that he tricked uh, Esau into giving up his birthright. So God had already preordained and predestined that Jacob would be the one who he would make into the nation of Israel. And not Esau, even though Jacob was, uh, was the youngest and Esau was the oldest. But he also, uh, in his divine plan, uh, somehow used Esau's will. If that makes, like, if you're grasping this a little bit. It's not as though he just controlled us like, you know, like we're robots and he just, you know, may, you know. It's, it's, it's like, no, you can actually go into time and see choices made by human beings that brought these things about in the real world mm-hmm. and in real time. So the God, yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's really a complex situation and it's, and it's a story that really unfolds in Genesis. You, you can see that. Isaac favors Esau and wants to pass on um, the birthright. And of course he does. He's his oldest because, son. Yep, because he's he was the firstborn. Granted, only by minutes, but that's you know still still the case. That's how rigid the, the society was. Right. But Rebecca uh, had a favor for Jacob, yep. and it could be uh, because of what God had told her about Jacob, or it could be just. Because she had a favorite yeah. son. Yeah, God did reveal to her that uh, he, that Jacob would be the one that he would make the nation out of. Yeah, and so you have Rebecca working with Jacob to trick Isaac. And then you have Esau make this decision where he's so hungry that he just can't wait. And Jacob has food and uh, and Esau asks him for it. And Jacob's like, I will give it to you if you if you give me the birthright. If you give up your claim on the birthright, I will give you this food. And that's that's the deal that they strike. And Esau makes that decision with eyes wide open. Right, he does. So it's really interesting how how God how is God's sovereign control, God's sovereign will, still works in harmony with our choices. So Esau desired food in his heart, absolutely with no hesitation, more than his birthright at that moment of time, and he made that choice. Was it outside of the ultimate will of God? Absolutely not. We just we, we read that it wasn't. It was perfectly in line with how God had preordained that it would come about. But we don't get that harmony in Scripture of how these things work in tandem. We don't need it. We see both to be true. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's... Uh, I mean, the phrase, Jacob, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. People get really like, whoa, you know, hated? God hates Esau? Like, what? Like, that's unbelievable. Uh, you know. Right, and we see that in other places. Je- Jesus says, like, truly said, if you don't hate your mother, your brother, your father, your sister, heck, even your own life, you are not fit to be my disciple. So we see such harsh language used to prove a point. Um, we should not think of it in regards of though, like this hate is like our sinful, wicked hatred. Like we are able to muster up in our wicked souls. Uh, maybe you can say it's a righteous hatred, um, a holy hatred. Uh, but it, it is showing the, it is showing, making a point though. And it's making the point very clear. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is, so Paul's doing a lot of old Testament quoting here. Uh, in verse 12, um, when he says, quote, the older will serve the younger, he's uh, quoting Genesis there and the conversation that God had with, um, with Rebecca, and that's in Genesis 25-23. But in verse 13, um, Paul quotes Malachi 1, 2, and 3. And Malachi is a prophet who lived many, many like 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau lived. And he was able to look back and see the nations that arose um, from Jacob, which would be the nation of Israel, and then Edom uh, from Esau. And and you can see in history the judgment that was laid against Edom. And, um, and, and so Malachi has the ability to look back and say, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated with that lens. And of course, it's still inspired by the Holy Spirit. So um, that that just adds more depth yeah. to the sovereignty that we're talking about here. Absolutely. Well, let's continue. Take her away. Yeah, so, and I think, you know, 
Paul anticipates pushback on this point. Um, Paul anticipates people to say, "Whoa, hang on a minute! Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like this." So Paul says, "What then shall we say?" And he anticipates people saying, "Well, that's unjust. God's being unjust." And uh, Paul says, "Absolutely not." Yeah. That that by no means we talked about that last week is um, the it's it's the Greek term for the strongest possible negative reaction in the Greek language. You know, we would say absolutely not, or you know, heck no. Yeah, heck no. You know, I mean, how, whatever the strongest way that you don't can even imagine. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, imagine to say no is like yeah. It's like don't even think about that God could be unjust. Yeah. Uh, and then for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So I want to stop there before we go into the example that Paul oh. gives. Because right there it says it doesn't depend on human will. I don't know how you could ask for anything clear. Like if we want answers to these questions, what else do we want? What else do you want? I don't know what else I would want. Right. And, you know, like, I mean, funnily, I, I always, when I read this, I always think of Star Wars. <laughs> and I think of one of the bad prequel Star Wars movies, right? Where uh, Yoda says, my own counsel I will keep on who is ready. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's very similar. Like, God is saying... My own counsel I will keep on whom I will have mercy on whom I will, I will not. <laughs> like, and and that, that's exactly what verse 15 says. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And again, it's important to realize here, and we talked about this with the, if you listen to the total depravity talk, every single human being deserves righteous wrath against them. Deserves it. We all deserve hell. So, God showing mercy or compassion to anyone is above and beyond what is owed to them. We are owed wrath, and that's just of God to owe us wrath because we have willingly rebelled, and we have, there's a punishment. So if, even if God was to show mercy on one person out of billions who have ever lived, that's perfectly just of him to do that. And if he shows mercy to no one, that's perfectly just for him to do that because all have willingly rebelled. So... Keep that in mind. Continue, Mr. Adam. Yeah, so then in verse 12, Paul gives an example. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And we know from Exodus that Pharaoh was a bad guy. Pharaoh was just a bad dude, and we see time and time again, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then eventually, like, it, the, it, it, it flips, and it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh w- went, went to a point where God refused to show mercy on him, and then further hardened his heart. Right. We see that play out in the book of Exodus, Yep. Uh, which, of course, then led to, you know, the... the great judgments that were passed on Egypt. And why were those judgments passed? Not just to free the people of Israel, but you have to look at the broader historical things that happened there. And and God sums it up here very well um, through Paul. And it says, so my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Because what happened? The Israelites went out of Egypt in great power, they, they plundered Egypt on their way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went and they conquered the land of Canaan. Mm-hmm. They formed the nation of Israel, which is present today in that land. Right. Despite being evicted from that land several times. Right. The nation of Israel is still there um, or there again, I guess would be sure. a better way to say it. But uh, And because of that, I mean, you have Christ being born uh, in Bethlehem and and then, you know, dying in Jerusalem. And then you have the gospel spreading throughout the entire world from Jerusalem. So exactly what God told Pharaoh, what happened, that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth, is exactly what happened. Sovereign control. Right. And 
again, and part of it too was a judgment on the the nation of Egypt. They were worshiping pagan and false gods. Uh, they were wicked people. And Practicing so, slavery against for, God's people. Right. So there's there's wickedness there, and so God doesn't punish uh, just people. He he does punish injustice, and we see that throughout the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. How when Israel was drifting away from God and pursuing false gods, he would raise up, he would might even raise up a wicked nation to go and bring and come against them uh, to judge them. And then Assyria. he would judge that nation. Assyria, <laughs> that, yeah. and then Babylon. using Babylon to judge Assyria, and then using yeah. Persia to judge Babylon. It's like, yeah, unbelievable. God is in control of it. And, it, and throughout the Old Testament, it says that God is in control. Right. He raised I mean, up this specific, I'm going to raise up this person to come. And- Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus, the king of Persia, would exist and conquer Babylon hundreds of years before before he before he was even born. Exactly. Yep. And, and Isaiah named him. Yep. Which is unbelievable. Sovereign control. Sovereign control. Uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, and this is kind of related to this this part of God of hardening Pharaoh's heart too with this idea. Um, it's not as though Pharaoh wanted to let them go like oh i just want to let the the israelites go i really want to let them go it's my just the desire of my heart to let them go and god is forcing me to continue to oppress them no it's not as though it was like that it, it was god it was pharaoh's pleasure and chief desire and his greatest uh craving to continue to oppress them and so his hardening of pharaoh's heart was like he was again like we talked about in romans one i i total depravity, I think we talked about this, that he gave Pharaoh over to his passions mm-hmm. of wickedness. Gave him over, and when he gives a man over to what the man wants to do, the man's going to go into deeper forms of wickedness, and that's what we see. Uh, eventually, you know, it just Pharaoh just continues to get wickeder and wickeder and more harsher and harsher, and, and God judges him. Yep, absolutely. But then, uh, Paul anticipates another argument. Because you might say, well, if Pharaoh was was hardened by God, how can God possibly find fault? So how, how can God find fault in sinners if he chooses not to save them? Because God is making the choice of who to save. Right. So nobody else has an option for salvation. So how can God find fault in them? Right. That's... And, that's exactly the question that Paul answers in verse 19, or asks in verse 19 and goes on to answer. Uh, because, so verse 19 says, Will you say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? Uh, and Paul's answer and response, uh, as Thunder continues to drink water, I'm just going to pause for a second. <laughs> I th- honestly thought he drank it all the first time. Well, you remember you stopped him? You oh, yeah. He said his name. He was going to finish the whole thing off. He, he might have. I hear him lapping. Did you know that when a dog drinks... Um, it goes upside down. Yeah, it goes up. upside down and backwards. Oh, yeah. Isn't it. that so weird? That's so cool. I love it. Okay, so <clears throat> we're back. And Okay, so Paul's answer in verse 20 is so strong and it says but who are you O man to answer back to god that's the end of the conversation it is i mean and it, it's 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 it, it's it not the end of, of the conversation because the chapter goes on it but, makes you think of job too yeah Job's like, i'm gonna i'm gonna say this i'm gonna say this i'm gonna defend myself blah 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 and then God speaks to him in the whirlwind, and God says, where were you when I formed the foundation? Where were you? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And Job is just like dumbstruck, dumbfounded, silenced, can't say a word. Who am I? Who am I to bring anything against the Almighty God? Who am I to say a word against him? I have spoken too early. I should not have said these things. I do not know what I was saying. Mm-hmm. When we actually stand before the holy God of the universe, we will be our mouths will be zipped closed. We won't even we won't have anything to say, nothing. Right, and and really this question in verse nineteen, um, why does God still find fault? Because who can resist His will? It's the same question as 
as verse 14. It's just stated differently. Well, there has to be injustice on God's part. It's unjust for God to judge sinners. Not fair. Unjust. Because they can't resist his will um, to—they can't resist his will to stay sinners. Well, who are we to accuse God of injustice? Who are we to answer back to God? And then Paul continues, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So I want to pause before we dive into the next portion of this because the image that Paul is saying here is that God has created uh, a, a clay pot and then used the same lump of clay to create a second uh, pot. And so that, that's the image that Paul is trying to invoke here. And he's saying, well, if, I, if you or I make something out of clay and we decide that in one of them it's going to be a always clean uh, thing to hold water yeah, so we can drink water. out of it, and the other one is going to hold motor oil, that is entirely up to us when we make them. Um, to, to use the one for water and the other for motor oil. Yeah. I mean, if you even wanted to get even more gross and explicit, one for drinking water, one for bowel movements. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it matters not. Like, the, the pots have no right to say back to the us, the creators, well, why did you make me this way? Yeah. Because I did. Because I did, and I right. have the right. And again... We talked about this. I think we might have mentioned this analogy uh, maybe in the the first episode on the gospel or maybe the second on the false gospels. I don't remember. But the point is like – I think it was the first one because we we were talking about the nature of God. And like this picture even falls short because God – what he made us out of was actually spoken into existence out of nothing. Like he very he spoke our very being into existence from nothing. Like that is sovereign ownership. He totally owns us in every regard. Every atom that is in my body is owned by him. He made it. Everything is his. Mine, mm. mine, mine, mine. He can say everything is mine. There's nothing that's not his. And we gotta realize that. Like, who are we? To speak against God. Who are we to say he's unjust? Who are we to say he can't do this or that? He's God. Yeah. I don't even know where we... Like, the only th- reason I can understand why we think we can speak against God is because of the flesh. Because we're self-centered and selfish people. And we elevate our own being. And we seek our own gain. And we we, we, we want to be God. Well, hu- humanity has um, this natural tendency, which... Uh, as we go into Romans 10 in this conversation, Paul will address to bring the holiness of God down and to elevate the holiness of humanity. Yep. Unbelievable. Hmm. So, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience... Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let me say two things. This is where we're going to get the answer for why if you're saying okay i get it i get it i see it clearly god has elected certain people god has chosen certain people i'd see it but why but why but why we get the answer here second thing this is also some of the most significant verses in all the bible answering the problem of evil question why does evil exist this also answers that question so this, these are very, very, very significant verses. Very significant verses. It's very important to understand how they're written, understand the word order, understand the words used. These are very significant. 
Yeah, there, there's a lot of important grammar in here. And so in verse, we'll focus on verses 22 and 23. So what if God, so God is the subject here. It's almost a saying, Paul is, you know, being a little generous. You right. Could say. You could yeah, say, it's basically is. saying God. Yep. So God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power. So God, if you think back to eternity past before creation, it was the Trinity. And there was only holiness because there was only the Trinity. Right. Uh, And there was certainly um, other attributes of God at play, like uh, love, for example. Uh, The Trinity has infinite love for one another. Um, But there was no way for God to show wrath because there was no there there was no unholiness, there was no way for God to show mercy, because there was no unholiness, right. and that's ultimately what Paul is saying here. Right. So, in order for God to show His mercy, and to make known how powerful He is, uh, He has to endure, and that's the key thing here. Notice that God is enduring with much patience vessels of wrath. Prepared for destruction. And God is not preparing them for destruction. Um, Human beings are the vessels of wrath. Uh, Unregenerate human beings are the vessels of wrath. uh, Because people who never come to salvation will face the wrath of God. And it is their sin that has prepared them for destruction. It is not God. Because in this verse... Uh, God is the subject who is enduring um, with much patience uh, those vessels of wrath. So when we say, well, why does evil continue the way that it does? Why why is there bad in the world? It is because God is enduring this evil. God is enduring sin um, so that he can make known his wrath and, and his power. And then also in verse 23... You'll notice that this becomes different. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So now Paul switches to talking about the vessels of mercy or the people, the elect, the saved people, which he, God, has prepared. So notice that now God has prepared them beforehand for glory. Right. So you have all of this stuff happening here. God is enduring the evil sin of non-believers so that he can prepare his elect people, which he has, which he actually prepared beforehand. Remember what He's we already had done the book it. of life written yep. beforehand. He did it before creation. He prepared them for glory. And he's going to let all of this play out in his patience and, in, and enduring um, the, this sin and evil so that at the end of it, he can make known his power and wrath. Right. And just to add a few things, very well said, Mr. Adam. <laughs> uh, that endurance thing. Here's, here's, here's something that comes up a lot. This is more of a practical application. Uh, something significantly dreadful will happen to somebody in their life. Like maybe they lose a loved one, and the loved one is young. Maybe the, Maybe a parents lose a child and you go how is this possible how is how could god allow this to happen and or we you know just keep that that question in the back of your head or we go to the the old testament and we see how when israel the nation of israel was conquering the promised land uh, god would command the nation to kill every single person in the cities kill everyone kill the children kill the women kill the men don't leave anyone alive and it was a judgment on their wickedness and their rebellion against god they worship pagan false gods they were wicked people and so god sending the nation of israel in to conquer these lands uh, was not only just to give them the promised land but also to to bring judgment on these wicked nations and so we go well why did god you know so we're, what we're used to is we're used to uh, 
God enduring our wickedness. We're used to God's patience. God is very, very, very patient with us. And we see it here. He endures with much patience vessels of wrath. He hates wickedness. God wants to bring judgment against it. He wants to display his wrath against injustice and evil. He wants to. He's ready. Like his bow is, like Jonathan Edwards style, his bow is drawn back. The arrow is pointed at wickedness of humanity and he's so close to letting go and letting the arrow of his wrath fly and hit its mark, but he's waiting patiently. And so sometimes we see God's judgment displayed very quickly as uh, maybe a child dies. And, you know, part of that is they're also guilty and they also will experience death. And physical death is, is a judgment against sin. And so we will all face physical death. That's part of, you know, being uh, cursed. Uh, but again, if we're in Christ, we will be appointed to die once, but then we'll have eternal life. Um, whereas those who've never repented will die once and then also die twice in the eternal lake of fire. Uh, but so when we see some type of judgment happen in this life, you could say before the final judgment, it really reminds us like God could judge us now. Like, it could happen now, but in most cases, he's very patient, and he's, he's enduring all this wickedness for a time so that the fullness of the elect will come in, so that he will purify his people. He will make a people holy and blameless before him. He will save somebody from every tongue, tribe, and nation which he is predestined to save. And then judgment will come. And then he will pour out his wrath, and he will no longer endure. Mm-hmm. He will no longer be patient, and it will happen. Yeah. And, which we see play out in the book of Revelation. Exactly. Uh, and I want to I wanna pause and just kind of, just real quick, because we've mentioned it twice now, uh, the death of a, of a young child. And I, I just want to make clear, because I, this happens to people. Right. Um, or people... Um, People miscarry, or right. they or they have stillbirths. Right. Uh, I I know people who have gone through that, and it's it's heartrending, uh, and I know that it's not our topic today, but I do want to offer that the 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 story that we mentioned earlier when David and Bathsheba lost their baby, uh, is doctrinal evidence that in those situations that person goes to heaven right and they are with god for eternity and so if anybody has if anybody listening has encountered that or knows people that have gone through that i just want to offer that comfort since we've talked about it twice right and i think we'll talk about it certainly because here's 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 what we've just we're going to finish up talking about these two verses or the verses we've read because we've we read all the way up to 24 uh and then we're going to end for this podcast because we're already over an hour <laughs> and we still haven't made it through uh, the end of nine. And then we will want to talk about, like we said, we, we need to talk about evangelism. We probably need to hit on prayer before uh, prayer again. And we do need to talk probably about this question right here of what happens to those who, you know, the miscarriages, what happened to the abortions, what happened to the children that die? Like, what about them? Were they not an elect? Were they, are they not saved? And like Adam said, we do see evidence in Scripture, more than just a place that we talked about where, no, uh, there's good reason to believe that children do go to heaven if they do die. And this is where the Reformed doctrines of Calvinism and how the Bible talks about the doctrine of election provides great comfort. Because if it was up to human volition to choose God, then a child who does not have the the will yet to choose God and to hear the gospel and respond could not make that choice ever. A baby in the womb cannot make that choice. They do not have the ability. Mm -hmm. And so if Arminian doctrine is right, then what about that? But where we would say, no, God has predetermined those who he would save, even so much that we would say that he is so sovereign that he could have predetermined, and we believe that he did predetermine, even those who died in the womb to be saved. Why? Because how are we saved? By our guilt being on Christ, uh, that 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 guilt being punished on Christ on the cross, and God imputing to us an alien righteousness, which is Christ's. So we very well believe that uh, somebody in the womb who died, a child in the womb who died, 
a young child who dies, a baby who dies, who not, does not yet have the ability to comprehend the truth of the gospel, is very likely to have uh, had their guilt that they do have because they are, were in Adam, covered on the cross, and very well likely that they have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them through faith. We also see evidence in Scripture where the Holy Spirit indwelled people in the womb. He was in the womb. He, the Holy Spirit uh, indwelt John the Baptist in the womb. So we see hints like that. Well, we'll talk. We'll elaborate a little bit more on that because uh, we will want to ask the question: well, What about those who have never heard the gospel? And so uh, next week, okay, we got to finish this up. We got to finish these verses up. Problem of evil. Adam really mentioned it. It's here. Uh, there's a big. In 23, there's a big word, two words, in order. And that is a logical connection. Mm-hmm. So logically, and in, 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 like Adam was saying, God has these attributes and he creates to display them. He cannot display grace, nor can he display wrath unless there is a people that are undeserving. And so unless there's a people that are deserving of wrath, he can't display wrath. Unless there's a people that are undeserving, he cannot display grace, which is unmerited favor and an undeserved gift. So, in order to display grace, there needs to be wickedness. It's a logical connection. That is the problem of evil. Why does evil exist? So God can display his wrath and display his mercy. That's really, you could boil it down to that, Mm -hmm. really. Now, like we said before, okay, how (coughs) the big problem is, well, doesn't that make God the author of sin? No, it doesn't. God didn't create sin. He can't. It's impossible. He cannot sin. The Bible, Satan and Adam and Eve chose sin. Right. And the angels that fell were Satan. Right. Now, how did they choose sin? We don't really know, but that's what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to solve every mystery here. That's impossible. <laughs> we just want right. to try to say what the Bible says. Woo! <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll have that be the end of this episode. Uh, oh, my goodness, you know. Maybe we can finish election in three. We'll see. Maybe it'll drift over into four. But next uh, next week, you can expect for us to finish up Romans 9. It's very well likely that we'll, see, we'll go through Romans 10 because we're going to want to talk about evangelism, and Romans 10 talks about evangelism. Uh, and answer the question, what about those who never hear the gospel? Things like that. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully you've been learning some things. <laughs> but uh, catch you next time. Bye. Have a great week.